The Russians are just demonstrating that the Americans have no wherewithal to stand up for themselves. It is the week of June 29th, and welcome to episode 31 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a first-time guest, Lauren Dealey Mahler, former director of legislative affairs at the National Security Council, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, over the weekend, we learned that the U.S. intelligence community may have information that Russia is paying Taliban forces to kill American service members in Afghanistan. The president has denied that he was briefed. As of the recording of this podcast, there was no coherent explanation from the administration, nor was there any plan to deal with what appears to be a serious provocation from the Russians. This highlights what appears to be a series of national security snafus over the past few days. President Trump, because Angela Merkel killed his plan for a live G7 meeting at Camp David recently, announced that the U.S. would withdraw thousands of troops that have been stationed in Germany for decades and are one of the pillars of the NATO alliance. In Venezuela, President Trump appears to be wavering in his support for democratically legitimate head of state Juan Guaido and is now talking about direct negotiations with the corrupt dictator Nicolas Maduro. The supposedly big trade deal between the U.S. and China that the president has announced with great fanfare a few months ago may be completely discarded. The administration appears to be moving forward on withdrawal from the World Health Organization in the middle of a global pandemic on a scale we haven't seen in a century. And on top of all this, a book by former National Security Advisor John Bolton eviscerates the president and his foreign policy decision-making on a number of levels. He describes the commander-in-chief's thought process as, quote, a random walk that never stops. I mean, it's like a random walk meets Groundhog Day, unquote. So, Jamil, what's your assessment of where we are right now? How bad is it? I mean, unless it's a complete train wreck. I mean, the idea that Russians might have been paying bounties to kill American troops in Afghanistan, and the president either didn't know, didn't pay attention, wasn't briefed by his key intelligence advisors, or they didn't actually know, and it, and it went missing, even though we have dozens of reports now that are indicating that, in fact, the DNI's office did know, and that the only question is, was it included in any sort of briefing to the president, oral or the PDB? And if the president did know, what was he doing about it? And more to the point, forget whether he did or didn't know. Now that he knows, what is he doing? Because as far as we can tell, he's not doing anything. He's actually questioned the credibility of the assessment. He's questioned whether the assessment was made. He's questioned whether there's any truth to this. He's questioned whether the New York Times sources even exist. And so it is a comedy of epic proportions if it weren't for the fact that Americans were actually being killed in Afghanistan. There's evidence to suggest that, in fact, some actual American officers and intelligence officers in Afghanistan were killed as part of this bounty. In fact, we recovered money, which we believe may have been paid to Taliban officials with respect to this bounty. So this is a huge problem. It's reflective of a larger problem. We've obviously seen a similar type of activity in Iraq with the Iranians funding Qatab Hezbollah to kill Americans there, as well as launching missiles. So this isn't the first time uh, that we've seen Americans killed by foreign actors on this president's watch and a failure to do anything about it once again, would be catastrophic. Jamil, what about the fact that Afghanistan is central to U.S. national security? We've been involved there militarily for years since the immediate wake of 9-11. We have Americans in harm's way. It's an active war. We're in the middle of peace negotiations with the Taliban. It should be a place that is taken with the utmost seriousness, both in terms of the intel 
terms of diplomacy, in terms of public relations. And yet for 60 hours after this leak of news of Russian payments to Taliban-linked forces, there's still no coherent explanation from the White House of what it is, what it means, how they're responding, and how this fits into the policy structure. While the concerns about what the Russians are doing to Americans is grave, it seems to me that rank incompetence at the White House on a key national security issue is an even greater threat. Well, look, I don't disagree with that at all, and and I'm not going to support this White House's competence. It is completely and utterly incompetent when it comes to national security matters. Uh, It's an embarrassment to us as a nation. It's a threat to our national security the fact that the White House can't get its stuff together. But let's not kid ourselves, right? The idea that, that Afghanistan is a huge American priority and is so critical to our national security, well, somebody ought to tell the last president and the current president that because neither of them seems to have realized that for the last 12 years, we've all been trying to do is get out of Afghanistan. Never mind the fact that we've been safe in this country for the better part of almost two decades because we've been fighting our enemies there and in Pakistan and other parts of the world. But both this president and the prior president were doing everything they could to get the heck out of Dodge, including negotiating with terrorists repeatedly, including including ignoring congressional uh, restrictions on transferring detainees out of Gitmo, including the four Taliban, by the way, that we're now negotiating with uh, on these issues, um, and the president's complete misplay by trying to bring the Taliban to Camp David uh, right around the anniversary of 9-11 attacks. I mean, common sense has not informed our Afghan policy for the last 12 years. While I will absolutely agree with you that this administration is incompetent, this is a longer history of incompetence and 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 a failure to uh, pay attention to our national security when it comes to two administrations in a row. Lauren, what's your uh, perspective from your side of the aisle on this stunning failure of American leadership? Jamil's right on a bunch of points that this is clearly something that is not being taken seriously. Um, I think it's yet another issue that the White House is dumping into a bucket of things that are inconvenient to deal with and things that we don't want to talk about. So we're going to call them fake news and pretend like they didn't happen, except we're actually talking American lives right now. And the intelligence is being corroborated by allies who have seen it. It's a thing that has gone on and we keep getting hung up on the question of, well, the president wasn't briefed. The vice president wasn't briefed. Okay, tell me what that means. Are we really going to take this to the place where we come down to the semantics of vocabulary months from now and say, no one stood in the Oval Office, looked him in the eye and said, hey, guess what happened? It it seems like without that, we're taking it to that particular type of place before anyone's willing to take it seriously. And it's falling into that same general amount of chaos where no one knows what's happening, left hand, right hand, neither of them fully know what's happening or what they're doing themselves, much less talking to each other. And it comes down to just trying to save face on Twitter. And you have to take something like this more seriously. I see this in the broader disintegration of the national security decision making process and a few policy implications here. First of all, the politicization of our intelligence and our intelligence community. So we have been presented with uh, example after example of this president not just being unwilling to read the brief, but disputing the the conclusions of, of his intelligence community. If the reports prove to be true, that there was a clear intelligence stream suggesting or indicating that a Russian military unit who has been also been linked to targeted assassinations in Europe was paying bounties for the killing of U.S. forces. And that intelligence was dismissed because the president over the past couple of months that he should have been presented with that intelligence tried to expand the G7 to the G8 to include Putin and said that he believes Putin on a variety of issues. So one is the willful disregard of intelligence 
Secondly, it's Russia policy, right? In many ways, there's been actions that are laudable by this administration in terms of sanctioning uh, elements of the Russian government and Russian individuals for actions that have happened vis-a-vis Ukraine, vis-a-vis Syria, vis-a-vis election interference. Yet the very top of our government, the president, has displayed a very different preference for Russia policy and, and believes that by sheer power of personality, he can come to terms with Putin and that getting along with Russia is in the U.S. interest rather than making sure that Russian behavior doesn't threaten U.S. interests or security. And now we have a clear example, and this is my point number three, about the military, where the president has claimed over and over that he has restored the U.S. military, that he has restored its funding, that he's the best thing, that the Obama administration um, desecrated the military. But here we have a clear example of our service members being put explicitly in harm's way by another government, and he disregarded that. So he can no longer claim to be taking the security of our young men and women as a priority in the decision-making that he has about either Afghanistan or with respect to Russia. Every administration comes in thinking they can have a new approach to Russia. Obama did it. Hillary Clinton did it. They had the reset button. They said Bush was doing it the wrong way. They were going to do it the right way. Trump comes in and says Obama was doing it the wrong way. He's going to do it the right way. He knows how to get along with Vladimir Putin. And I think, you know, give the president a little bit of credit. Aside from the rhetoric on the policy level, we've taken tough sanctions against Russia. We've pushed back on their behavior in any number of places, on pipelines to Europe, on Ukraine, maybe not fully, but somewhat on Ukraine. On any number of issues, the president is pushing back on Russia. Maybe not exactly the way the Democratic Party wants, but it's not like he hasn't supported sanctions against Vladimir Putin. So what's the right approach to Russia? How would we do things differently that would be more sensible? So I did, by the way, in my in my comments, give credit to the administration for taking some of the correct actions with respect to Russia. But I dare say it wasn't the president himself who was supportive. He had to be dragged kicking and screaming. So for example, on Russia sanctions, It was actually Congress in an overwhelmingly bipartisan manner that passed punishing mandatory sanctions on Russia, which the administration then implemented. Uh, And a lot of the architecture for those sanctions has been designed and implemented by the State Department and the Treasury Department, etc., uh, a lot of those sanctions, not recently, right, in the first couple of years when uh, there were more adults in the room in the Trump administration. And in terms of the correct approach, I think, first of all, it would be listening to our intelligence community about their assessments about where there might be opportunities for some cooperation with Russia and what sort of coercive economic sanctions and other kinds of U.S. power can be brought to bear that might affect Russian decision making. And secondly, the Russians have no incentive to cooperate with the United States when they see the United States as having taken a series of actions that isolate ourselves. So if there is an administration committed to actually pushing back on Russia, the first thing you need to do is get allies and partners on your side. So that's rebuilding the transatlantic alliance that is working with our partners in Asia, in the Middle East, etc., to draw a very clear line about unacceptable behaviors and coordinate collective action to signal to Russia. Lauren, if in fact the Russians were paying Taliban or Taliban supporting militias to target American troops while a peace process is going on, and it's very clear that President Trump's interpretation of the peace process is going to lead to a total U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's now on the table if 
left unabated, that process would likely result in the U.S. leaving Afghanistan. You would think that would be something the Russians want. What's the explanation for why Russia would then, in, in, with this scenario playing out in front of them, would then say, oh, well, let's antagonize the Americans, disrupt the peace process, and maybe delay their departure? What's really going on here? I think it's a good question. And I think that you have to look a little bit about what we know at the moment or what we think we know about the bounty program. And you have to assume that whoever was putting it into play wasn't doing it with the eye towards the whole world's going to find out about this and then I can see what happens. This isn't actually a large disrupting effort until everyone finds out about it and starts talking about it and it gets dragged into the spotlight. In my mind, it's something that was being done behind the scenes for who knows how long. And while Russia doesn't necessarily want us there, they don't necessarily care if, you know, on the way out, they happen to kill a few Americans and they can, rather than be doing it themselves, they can see the Taliban doing it. I, I don't necessarily see a large, massive strategic intent behind this kind of a program other than let's see if we can screw with the Americans and not to diminish the seriousness of what the outcomes were. Um, but I think it becomes more disruptive to the process now that we're all talking about it in a way. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be, and it doesn't mean that someone shouldn't have been already doing something about it. But I don't think this was, you know, Russia's like major play to actually fix the world in the order that they want. You know, I think Lauren's exactly right. Look, I mean, I think that the Russians are trying to demonstrate that they can control part of the story here, right? They can control the narrative. They can demonstrate that the U.S. isn't actually willing to stand up for its own people um, and that we will leave even notwithstanding the fact that they're killing Americans and that violence has gone up. And we've already seen the administration continue to fall over themselves to make a deal with the Taliban, even as violence has escalated in the days and weeks and months since the time they, say, they signed the initial sort of agreement to move forward with the peace process. So the Russians are just demonstrating that the Americans have no wherewithal to stand up for themselves, are not willing to do it. They've seen us fail to really do it in Iraq for years and years and years. Admittedly, the president's uh, going after Qasem Soleimani was one important exception to that. Um, but by and large, they're just telling this, the Taliban and the Afghans another a story. Look, the Americans don't really care. You can kill them. They're going to get out when they get out. And we're still going to be here. We're still part of the game. You're doing things to our benefit. This is a longer-term play. Russia, which is a two-bit nation, barely surviving economically, is still playing this game that they are important players in Afghanistan, in Syria, and around the globe. And we're magnifying that by being completely unable to actually act in our own nation's interest. And again, this is a problem that goes back historically for longer than this president, but this president has doubled down on it and made it even an even bigger failure. So Dana, Lauren, if in fact Russia is just looking to bog down the United States wherever it can, humiliate us, disrupt us, make us not trust each other, get involved in our elections, kind of turn up the volume on whatever internal antagonisms we have here, mess with us abroad, maybe even where it's against their own interest to get us bogged down in places like Afghanistan even longer. How is Joe Biden going to handle this differently? What's going to be the approach if he wins? What will we do different next year? First of all, I don't see a Joe Biden administration reversing some of the tough sanctions against Russia that have been implemented during the Trump administration. But I also think that a Biden administration is going to have several priorities 
where it might need to explore whether or not cooperation with Russia is possible. So a good example is, and Jamil, just calm yourself for a minute. If there is the pursuit of some sort of new nuclear agreement with Iran, it's not going to be a bilateral deal between the United States and Iran. You would likely need to have Russia and China and the E3 and the European Union part of something. It would be very convenient uh, for the Russians to, again, seek to undermine the United States by slowing down that negotiation. But there's a good one. Another one is a Biden administration would try to restore U.S. standing at the United Nations and across the U.N. organizations and agencies, and particularly at the Security Council, where Russia has consistently with China vetoed resolutions that the United States and its partners in Europe have have backed over and over uh, to the erosion of international norms and resolutions against Iran in Syria, etc. So I think it is possible that a Biden administration would be pragmatic in if there are opportunities to work on other problems or or where there are overlapping interests with Russia, there might be those opportunities would be explored. But on the other hand, given the clear intelligence of Russian interference in our elections, continued ongoing Russian disinformation campaigns, coordinated and consistent Russian attempts to assassinate politicians and leaders and dissidents, not just in Europe and other places as well, and Russian intervention on behalf of malign actors in Venezuela, in Libya, in Syria, etc. I think the Biden administration is going to find itself on the opposite side of the table from Russia more than it is going to find itself on the same. I completely agree with what Dana was saying. And I think another key distinction that we would see is from a high level perspective, an ex- one of the things that has been so muddied under this administration is who our friends are and who they aren't. The relationship with our allies, one of the key long term strategic objectives of Russia is to destroy the relationships between the U.S. and our allies in Europe. And I think regardless of what the specific pragmatic steps are that a Biden administration would take, the thing that without a doubt you will see driving those decisions, unlike now, is a very renewed and strengthened effort to restore those relationships and to rebuild those relationships with our allies and make it very clear who is in the inner circle, who our friends are, and the policies that can come from that. Jamil, let's pull that apart a little bit. Uh, The U.S. relationship with uh, a country that's been an ally for decades now, Germany, is very fraught. President wants to pull out troops. We've had troops there for a very long time. It's very carefully negotiated. There's a lot of factors and interests involved. And it appears that he's pulling troops out because of his peak at Angela Merkel for dissing him on the G7 summit. Again, at Camp David, he seems to be obsessed with Camp David, taking people to Camp David. But there are some other kind of longer term issues. Germany is completely embedded in international organizations, the EU, the UN. It seems to be drifting economically a little bit more towards Russia and away from the UK and the US, uh, perhaps because of some energy decisions it's taken for domestic reasons. But for whatever reason, they're moving away from the Atlantic Alliance a little bit, and Trump seems to be all too happy to push him that way. What, what's the consequence for that? Are we, are we seeing something here that is a long-term concern for the United States, or does this end once Trump is gone, either next year or four years from now, and we have a new president in place? 
Well, no, I mean, I do worry that this is a longer term issue. I mean, the Germans have long been sort of playing footsie with other players in the globe, whether it's China or Russia, and playing footsie with themselves, becoming more aggressive in the region and sort of trying to take more of a leadership role um, in the European alliance and not really sort of uh, making it the U.S.'s backyard, which it never really has been. But there's a perception amongst Europeans, I think, self-fulfilling perception um, that the U.S. treats it that way. And so... This is not a surprise. I think what is surprising is the reasons for which the president is making this move. Obviously, you know, just another example of how this president can't separate himself and his own personality and his own ego from uh, the interests of the United States, which is a huge disaster for our country. But putting that to one side, you know, look, there are good reasons to redeploy troops to other parts of Eastern Europe. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Having a large uh, contingent of troops just sitting around Germany doing not a whole lot is not the best thing in the world. It would not be crazy if this were part of a larger strategic realignment. The problem is it's the president stamping his feet and scrunching up his eyes. It's not about strategic realignment. All that being said, I do think that maintaining a strong alliance with the Germans and bringing them back in line, you know, is important. Um, we have a very strong intelligence sharing relationship. Uh, one might remember back to the disclosures about the terrorism surveillance programs that we ran uh, post 9-11. And uh, interesting realization is that we stopped more terrorist attacks in Germany alone uh, than in the United States. Um, and so the Germans, while they complain about Angela Merkel's cell phone being monitored and want to push back on the G7, the United States plays a key role in protecting their security. And so I think it's important for them to remember that and us to remind them of that um, and to bring them back into line. Losing them to the Russians or the Chinese is not a good move for us or for them. But again, at the end of the day, I'm not opposed to troops being moved around. I am opposed to troops being pulled out from our major allies. And I think that's the major mistake here, because this isn't the only time the president's talked about this. He's talked about pulling troops out of South Korea. He's talked about the pull, pull out from Iraq, the pull out from Afghanistan. The, this president is all about bringing everybody home uh, because we don't have to worry about the rest of the world, of course. We saw the failure of that during the Obama administration. We don't want to repeat it here again. And the president seems committed, like President Obama was, to ending all endless wars, which is not a thing. Dana, I'm old enough to remember when Chancellor Merkel got really upset at President Obama for spying on her cell phone. We've had some snafus in the relationship going back a while. In a Biden administration, if he wins, do we just reset back to, you know, maybe happier times during the Bush administration or the Clinton administration? What's the what's the path forward here if Democrats take over? So, Les, I'm old enough to remember an Angela Merkel shrugging off George W. Bush's attempted massage at a multilateral event. It was more than a shrug. <laughs> That's true. It was a violent shoulder aggression. Anyway. <laughs> All that to say, I agree with some of what Jamil said, but I am not opposed to troop realignment or redistribution. But I do think that without diplomacy, military planning, or financial assessments, uh, clearly this is a wildly reckless and irresponsible uh, move. We don't have troops in Germany just for German security or for NATO security. We have them there for American security because to have the most powerful military in the world and to protect Americans, we have forces placed all over the world at strategic bases, not just for the betterment of those countries and governments and the security, but for ourselves. So that when there's an emergency, for example, in North Africa, we can very quickly get our troops there from the different bases in Europe. And we store equipment, we have security cooperation, we have military engagements, etc. Also, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, to try to bring back tens of thousands of U.S. forces and their families into our country, given the fact that the numbers aren't so great in Europe either, totally irresponsible and divorced in the national security decision-making process. In the Joe Biden administration, you would, first of all, have a responsible U.S. ambassador 
nominated and sent there that didn't spend their time haranguing the German government on Twitter about all the horrible things that they're doing. Number two, I think that a Biden administration would approach Germany in the context of, again, rebuilding the European alliances that we need to accomplish all of the other objectives that are in the U.S. national security interest, whether it's resolving conflicts, reestablishing a rules-based order, which is what Russia is trying to undermine, etc. And finally, with the Biden administration, you would find um, us not treating the Germans as a puppet or us as the patron, but actually trying to rebalance a relationship where you consult, figure out what the objectives are, have consistent dialogue, and then figure out together what the domestic appetites of both countries are to move forward. And frankly, I think at this point, if I were the German people or the German government, such wild swings from administration to administration would suggest to me that Washington is not a government to be relied upon. So we're going to have to work really, really hard to rebuild and reestablish that trust and the intimacy of consultation that comes with intelligence sharing. So I think on the Germany question, it it does go back to the question of reestablishing those relationships with our allies. And I think that we're never going to go back to reestablishing them the way that they had been before. I think that there's a lot of ground that we have to make up with the U.S. from a leadership perspective, where it's not, as Jamil said, us getting Germany back in line, because I don't think that's a thing anymore. I think that it's now, okay, how are we going to redefine the way that we work together, building on the agreed and reliable principle that, yeah, we're actually going to work together, which would be a nice change to put that forward in a credible way. Um, I think when it comes to the troop question, I think the one factor that always has to be brought in here too is Congress, realigning troops, doing it for strategic interests, doing it so that, you know, we have mission alignment and everything else that we need that happens out of the troops that we have stationed in Germany now that Congress is going to have a lot to say about that. They're already attempting to weigh in on some of the questions that have come up before on forces stationed in Korea. So I have no doubt that that they're not going to stay silent on this front either. So this isn't something where we're going to we're going to get a tweet on Wednesday and 5000 troops are out on Friday. Yet again, throw it in the bucket of things that are just confusing and it'll get sorted out in the wash somewhere along the way. But our credibility takes a little hit in the process. Jamil, I don't know about you, but I think more is going on here than just Trump kind of shooting from the hip and making decisions on Twitter and, you know, just generally acting like an eight-year-old. I think there's something deeper going on here. Interests are changing in Europe, uh, in Asia. Things are rebalancing across the globe. Some countries are moving up in terms of their ability to affect events in their region. Others are declining. Inexplicably, Russia's abilities, which should be declining, seem to be growing, even though their their population is waning, their income, they're basically an oil state. Uh, they've, they've got real limitations and they seem to, to be thriving on the idea that they're going to mess with the United States no matter what we do. Uh, but it does seem like there's more than than just one man's bad Twitter habits at stake here, that there needs to be a serious effort to reconsider U.S. interests and maybe refashion international arrangements, relationships, alliances, 
international organizations accordingly. We shouldn't pull out of the WHO, for example, but boy, we should definitely change it or replace it with something that better helps us deal with a pandemic. What's your take? How would a normal Republican administration, to the extent there is such a thing, be handling things right now? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think Lauren and Dana are exactly right. And Lauren's right to say that that it's not about bringing Germany back in the line. It's more about bringing them back into the fold, right? And, and maybe that's more what I meant to say, right? It is important that we bring our allies along with us. Part of the challenge, I think, that we've had in this administration, but I think, I have to be honest, I think it goes back to the Obama administration, right? Is this issue of we have not been our allies' greatest supporter, nor our enemies' worst fear. We've failed miserably at that for eight years of the Obama administration. It's gotten worse for the last four years, right? I mean, the president has made our worst enemies, uh, Russia and China, unafraid of us. Uh, China may be engaged in a trade war, but they don't think we really have the stomach for the long fight. The Russians we've just rolled over to. Uh, the Iranians got punched in the teeth once, but it took them hitting us over and over and our allies over and over and over again before we did anything. And North Koreans think they can get a better deal out of Donald Trump than they got out of Bill Clinton in that terrible agreed framework uh, that Wendy Sherman was at the heart of. So it is no shocker that our allies are not heartened by us. I think Dana is exactly right to say um, that our allies are looking around wondering whether the U.S. is going to be there. They don't think we're going to be there, nor do our enemies fear that we're going to be there either. And so I do think that this is a larger problem. You know, if I were advising an incoming Republican president, that's obviously not going to happen in this term. Uh, But when I was involved with the campaigns prior, I said that the best thing a U.S. president could do on day one of their administration would be to announce that on Inauguration Day, uh, planes were taking off from every air base in the United States, taking military supplies and personnel to all of our close allies in Asia, in Europe, in Central Asia, across the globe, saying we are back. We are here to protect you. We are with you. We are we're done with backing off of things. We're going to be in the game. But the problem is, you know, we've been talking about getting out of all these conflicts overseas. We've been trying to bring American troops home for now the better part of over a decade and a half. And look, the truth is America succeeds when America leads. America leads when it is out there engaged with our allies, both diplomatically and, yes, militarily. And we can't do those things uh, if we're not out there doing it. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, this is a, a symptom of a larger problem. But honestly, I don't see whether Donald Trump is reelected or Joe Biden is elected. I think things will get better with our allies. I don't think they're really going to trust that we're there with them unless Joe Biden looks a lot more like Hillary Clinton than he did when he was the vice president. Dana, do you have a slightly different interpretation of the Obama years? First of all, I do think that there are louder voices on the right and the left of our political spectrum that are calling for an end of or drawing back of heavy U.S. investment abroad and a need to invest here. And we've discussed here on this on this podcast that at some point after the COVID-19 pandemic, we will likely be more inwardly focused, as will almost all of the allies and partners with which we traditionally try to align ourselves and cooperate because countries will have learned the wrong lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic, trying to take their supply chains inside their own countries. And in terms of recovering from the pandemic, in terms of recovering from the global recession, et cetera, people will be and governments will be more inwardly focused than they will be internationally at the exact time when the lessons that we should be taking away are the need to be able to share information and coordinate because the problems facing American security now are actually global international problems, not just domestic problems. I just want to comment that I think most of our traditional allies and partners are pining for the days of the Obama administration. And if we want to talk about when alliances or partnerships were ripped apart or when the United States wasn't consulting, we probably need to go back at least to the George W. Bush years, for example, and the warnings. I know we we always go back to this, 
about certain actions in the Middle East. So when we talk about the forever wars that we may or may not need to be get, getting out of today, those things did not start during the Obama administration. And I'll just I'll just say for the record, not all of our allies look back fondly on the Obama years. Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is still an ally, would totally disagree with you. That's right. I don't think it's universal. But I don't think that Saudi Arabia and Israel thinking, well, hey, it's going really great with the Trump administration in Washington right now with the kinds of knee jerk decision making and announcements about all sorts of things that they weren't pre-consulted on. So at a very minimum, alliances and partnerships, whether one political party supports them or not, government to government, no surprises. You share intelligence that's threatening your allies. Like if we knew that Taliban-linked militants were being offered bounties to kill American and British soldiers by Russia. We shouldn't have informed the, the UK government last month. We should have informed them when we knew about the intelligence in March. I mean, but look, it's not like we didn't know Iranians were killing Americans all over Iraq for the better part of, you know, six years. We didn't do anything about that either under the Obama administration. Oh, that goes way back before the Obama administration. So this is just not all roads lead back to Obama, Jamil. I'm just saying that we didn't do anything about it effectively for six years. We let it continue and continue and get worse. Pretty sure we at least told the president about it. Fair, right? Fair. And look, there's, there's new reporting. I'm just seeing new reporting coming in right now suggesting that, that there was some dissent within the intelligence community on these questions. I'm not, not going to defend the decision to not tell the president or the president's own incompetence when it comes to national security, right? I'm just saying, let's not kid ourselves that our enemies were not afraid of us back in the prior administration either. Russia got involved in Syria prior to Donald Trump coming into office, and Iran got close to a nuclear weapon and then only backed off of it for a sweetheart deal that basically allows them to get a nuclear weapon whenever they want, right? The North Koreans tested nuclear weapons, right, during the Obama administration. It is not like this was all sunshine and roses and everything was great. And, and by the way, our, it's, of course our allies love us when we just roll over, right? That's no surprise uh, that people love you when you don't really push back on anything and just let them do what they want to do, like make, an, make a terrible deal with Iran. So look, I mean, nobody's going to defend the Trump administration's behavior uh, when it comes to international relations or its decisions on national security. But this is a larger story. And Dana, you're right that there are members of both parties who are saying we need to bring these troops back home. And there's, there's this ongoing movement. You're right. I do hanker for the days when America led in the world. God forbid we should lead in the world. Um, but just because there's strong views in Congress about that, right, and loud mouths in Congress who say that, it doesn't mean it's the right thing for our nation. It doesn't mean it isn't where leadership to take us. And I do hope that Joe Biden, if he becomes a president, will be a more a stronger, more aggressive president along the lines that Hillary Clinton would have been if she had been elected to office, right, which was not Barack Obama and which is not Donald Trump. Sounds like someone might be voting for Joe Biden. Lauren. I would just say there was something Jamil said earlier that jumped out at me about how we're no longer our allies' greatest friend or our enemy's worst enemy. I'd settle for just skipping the reverse. Okay, we'll wrap up that topic there. And let's go to our final topic where we each go around and mention a story we're following that is not necessarily on the front page of the paper. Who wants to go first? Dana, how about you? Thanks, Les. So I am following a different pandemic, the Ebola outbreak in Africa in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there is still um, an active conflict. The Ebola pandemic got there in August 2019. It has killed over 2,280 people. According to the World Health Organization, a pandemic is over when there haven't been new cases reported for 42 consecutive days. And that has happened in a country still experiencing active conflict. And yet between uh, coordination with the World Health Organization and local frontline workers and following strict adherence to guidelines about 
treating patients and also uh, how you deal with people deceased from the pandemic, they have declared it over. There is hope for COVID-19. Lauren, what are you following? Well, I'm a a Hill rat at heart and always will be. So this is uh, NDAA week, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2021. The Senate is dealing with the bill on the floor, which is always a fabulously overstuffed Christmas tree of who knows what kind of goodness they're going to debate and discuss. And on the House side, it's going through the full committee uh, marathon markup starting on Wednesday. So I think that there are a lot of things to keep an eye on that will come out of those particular milestones in that process. Obviously, neither is final um, and likely won't be for quite some time. But I think that we were talking about troop levels. There are provisions in there, as we said before, addressing limits on troop withdrawals from Korea. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Germany continues to bubble up and finds its way into the conversation at some point. Um, there are provisions that will be dealt with at some stage of the game related to base naming. And we know that that's just a, a whole nother large issue with repercussions all down the line. And as usual, nuclear weapons, arms control, everything tends to get stuffed in there at some point, whether it happens Wednesday on the House side during the, the full mark or whether it waits until the House floor for everyone to get their say. Um, you can believe that there'll be a lot of moving pieces and headlines popping up here and there. And then uh, a few months from now, we'll see where it all comes out in the wash. But there will definitely be changes uh, made from even what we're discussing right now. Yeah, I think that's a great issue. And at some point, in the future, we should have a whole podcast about Senate floor procedure, how to offer an amendment uh, before cloture is invoked, what are the politics of doing it after, committee jurisdictional issues, airdropping, first degree amendments, second degree amendments. Is it plausible to have a third degree amendment? Some people think yes. Most people think no. Jamil, what are you following? So, Les, you know, I'm following this uh, indictment of President Trump by the Iranians. An Iranian prosecutor has brought charges against President Trump for the killing of Iranian Quds Force, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani in early January. Uh, Of course, it's a joke. The president is not going to be uh, tried in an Iranian court for the killing of Qasem Soleimani. It's atmospherics. It it is another opportunity for the Iranians uh, to try to demonstrate their people they're paying no attention to their own health, never mind that huge chunks of the Iranian parliament and the leadership structure are, have been infected by COVID and that it continues to be a big issue. They're trying to distract people of Iran's attention and focus it abroad. Qasem Soleimani was a terrorist, uh, had long been a terrorist and got what he deserved and had been killing Americans for years before this happened. Um, and frankly, it was the first time the U.S. actually pushed back effectively on Iran um, in the better part of a generation. And so um, it's exciting uh, to see that. Um, and frankly, we should be doing more of that. The issue I'm following is the U.S. response to the COVID pandemic internationally. That is our assistance programs for countries that are dealing with the repercussions of the virus. Last week, Senator Menendez, the ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee, wrote to the head of USAID uh, asking him a lot of questions about the U.S. sending ventilators to Russia while at the same time not providing PPE and other more basic forms of assistance to developing countries, poorer countries that really needed the help. It could be the beginning of a politicization of the international coronavirus response. I would cast a lot of blame in the administration for not having a robust plan, not explaining it. 
and not too much on the ranking member for at least asking some tough questions. Uh, but I hope we can avoid politicizing that and move on to a place where there's a real uh, bipartisan support for a robust response. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Nikki Keddington for research assistance, and our terrific producer and director, Grant Haver, for all of his work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.